Good evening, and welcome Beatrice and Shelley. Thank you for joining us. So I'd like to begin, uh, if you would uh, join me, with uh, reciting the Refuges and the Precepts on page 4. <coughs> so please repeat after me in the Pali scriptural language. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa 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 Buddhaṃ saranaṃ gacchāmi Saranaṅga chāmi Dhammaṃ saranaṅga chāmi Sāṅgāṁ saranaṅga chāmi Dutiampi Dhamman Saranga Chami Dutiampi Dhamman Saranga Chami Dutiampi Tatiampi Budong Sarananga Chami Tatiampi Budong Sarananga Saranangga Chami Tatiampi Dhammam Saranangga Chami This completes going for the three refuges. Please repeat after me in the Pali scriptural language. Panyatipada Varamini Sakapadam Samadhi Ami Panyatipada Varamini Sakapadam Samadhi Ami Adina Dana Varamini Sakapadam Samadhi Ami Adina Dana Varamini Sakapadam Samadhi Ami Kamesu Michachara 
Namini Sagapadam Samadhi Ami Kaisu Sachana Brahmini Sagapadam Samadhi Ami Musa Vada Brahmini Sagapadam Samadhi Ami Musa Vada Brahmini Sagapadam Samadhi Sura Maria Maja Paratana Ramani Sakapadam Samadhi Ami Sura Maria Maja Paratana Ramani Sakapadam Samadhi Ami Please repeat after me in English. I undertake the precept to refrain from sources of livelihood that bring harm to other beings. I undertake the precept to refrain from sources of livelihood that bring harm to other beings. I undertake the precept to refrain from acting out of ill will or taking satisfaction in the misfortune of others. I undertake the precept to refrain from acting out of ill will or taking satisfaction in the misfortune of others. I undertake the precept to be open-hearted and generous in all my relationships with others. I undertake the precept to be open-hearted and generous in all my relationships with others. I undertake the precept to act with loving-kindness and compassion in all my relationships with others. I undertake the precept to act with loving-kindness and compassion in all my relationships with others. I undertake the precept to live with mindfulness and follow the Eightfold Path through daily study, meditation, and reflection. With these ten precepts, virtue becomes the vehicle for a happy existence. Through virtue, good fortune is attained. Virtue is the vehicle for liberation. Let us purify our virtue. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings be free from ill will. May all beings be filled with loving kindness. May all beings be truly happy. Thank you very much. <clears throat> and good evening. Gaia is engaging in some heavy breathing outside. <laughs> Does anyone have any questions or comments that they would like to begin with? Yeah. I was thinking when you were talking about different physical sensations because there was a number of, of different sensations and experiences this afternoon. One was of the abdomen being like kind of glowing like. Mm -hmm. And then um, this actually was earlier, but I felt like my chest was like kind of glowing too and kind of like liquid. Mm -hmm. And then this is real feeling of spaciousness and joyfulness. It was Oh, yeah. very good. Yes, and so you just allowed those feelings to yeah, be. Yeah, they happened, and they yeah. happened, and then my leg hurted, and they went away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, ah, uh, good. That's wonderful. Yeah. Glad to hear that. And that's that's the right thing to do. Just keep on practicing. Let these things, uh, the good ones, come back and get stronger. And 
Thank you, Terry. Anyone else have anything? Yes. Perhaps you can just tell me um, what to read, but I don't really understand the rituals involved in um, your practice and um, the etiquette and the altar and what the altar means and the mm-hmm. candles. And so I don't know if you want to address that now. Or mm-hmm. uh, no, I think that that's, uh, that's, that's a fine thing. Um, <clears throat> There's not a lot of rituals in my practice, but there's many different forms of Buddhism, and some have many more rituals than others. <clears throat> to start off with, <clears throat> the the altar with a Buddha image, and in the case of this one, we've got three Buddha images. But <laughs> but the idea of some kind of an altar uh, with a Buddha image is of course to uh, to pay respect, homage to the Buddha for the teaching that has come down to us and, and uh, uh, the appreciation we have for that uh, and to and of course to remind us and it's part of course of what makes a particular space a, a sacred space you know, um, a space that's not ordinarily a sacred space can be made into a sacred sacred space by creating an altar, uh, placing a Buddha image on it, and various things that have different symbolism. Uh, and of course, the space where you permanently keep an altar and a Buddha image has uh, it, it becomes permanently a, sort of a sacred space. So it's creating a sacred space to practice in. That's part of it. <clears throat> but more than anything else, it represents the presence of the Buddha. And um, traditionally, uh, where you, how you approach the uh, altar and where you sit down, uh, traditionally, uh, and I can't really explain the reasons, although this goes back to the descriptions in the sutras, that when you come in, you keep your right side to the Buddha. And uh, as a teacher, somebody that's you either sit facing the Buddha or you sit on the, uh, on the left side of the Buddha. So the Buddha is on your right side, as I'm doing. And so uh, I'm not sure exactly what the sidedness of it symbolizes, but... Um, the doing of it is a it's a maintaining of a tradition of respect that goes back to the time of the Buddha. When you read the sutras, you know it will say uh, so and so decided to go and heard the Buddha was in the uh, in the grove and decided to go and see him. And so uh, approaching the Buddha, keeping him on his right side, he walked and sat down on his left, and then. He asked the Buddha whatever his question was, or so forth. So, we're keeping that tradition of respect. Uh, so that's what part of it is. This altar is fairly simple, and the pictures you see are pictures of uh, of my teachers. Uh, and 
that's something that people normally put on the altar. Everything else other than that is would be whatever an individual person uh, feels is uh, is meaningful and symbolic to them. And you'll find some people have very uh, ornate al- altars, and some people have very simple altars. Some have a lot of different things on their altars, and some a few. But the most typical and traditional thing would be a Buddha image, uh, photographs of teachers or pictures of teachers, uh, and, and of course candles and incense, all of which helps to uh, create that sacred space. The chanting we do, the first part of it is paying homage to the Buddha, acknowledging the Buddha. Namotasa Bhagavato Arahata Sama Sambuddha. Uh, and the last part of that is uh, the term Sama Sambuddha. Uh, an enlightened person or an awakened person is a Buddha. That's actually what Buddha means is, is awakened. A Sama Sambuddha is a Buddha who is not only awakened but is uh, uh, capable of establishing the Dharma in the world and uh, teaching in a way so that it's uh, received by many different kinds of people and perpetuated. So um, acknowledging the Buddha as Samasam Buddha because he, he established the teaching that we follow today. He introduced it to the world. Uh, traditionally we say that he rediscovered it. There's been many Buddhas and that when the teaching dies out, a new Samasam Buddha arises. And to become a Samasam Buddha, uh, a Bodhisattva, that's somebody on the path to awakening, who takes a vow to become a Samasam Buddha. And then, uh, you know, the tradition tells us that it takes many eons of lifetimes to accumulate the wisdom and merit that allows somebody to be a Samasam Buddha to come into the world uh, from into a world from which the teaching has been lost and teach in such a way that it's reestablished in the world the wheel of the Dharma is taught and that uh, it spreads and it distinguishes the, the, the incredible depth of understanding of the Dharma and the ability to teach it to many different kinds of people is part of what distinguishes uh, Samasam Buddha from uh, from your ordinary average everyday Buddha. <laughs> so, uh, uh, and the the, the term Namotasa Bhagavata Arohato uh, it mean you know blessed one, accomplished one, uh, and fully enlightened one. And then the going for refuge. Um, you notice we do that three times and we go for refuge to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha and there are there are several different uh, explanations of the symbolic meaning of doing it three times but uh, the one that is most common in the tradition that I come from is that they represent the the past, the future, and the present. So when you 
when you go for refuge to the Buddha the first time, you're going for refuge to the uh, historical person, the Samasam Buddha that set the real Dharma in motion 2,500 years ago. And the sense in which you're going for refuge, the word refuge is important because you seek refuge from, uh, from difficulty, from trouble, from challenge, from, from pain, from threat, from danger, right? That's the meaning of refuge. So to t- say that we take refuge in the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha means that uh, just the fact that we say we're taking refuge means that we recognize and appreciate the fact that we've got a problem. We're in a difficult situation. And uh, we, we, need, we need something that provides us with uh, shelter, protection, guidance, uh, you know, all of the things that are implied in, in a refuge. When we go for refuge to the Buddha, it's not. Although in some uh, in some traditional lay interpretations, uh, what you might call village Buddhism, somebody might feel as though they're the the Buddha is uh, is this being that they're going to refuge for. But what we're really doing is we're going for refuge to the awakening. And Buddha means the awakening. So we're going refuge to, for refuge to the awakening of Siddhartha Gautama because he was a human being. Uh, his awakening was achieved on his own through his own efforts, not through some divine dispensation. It wasn't through some divinity or act of grace, but it was through his own uh, struggle and practice. And he was a human being just as we are. So we go refuge, go for refuge from the dissatisfactoriness that we sense in worldly existence to the awakening of the Buddha because we it's it's available to us as well. So that's what the that's what the refuge taking means taking refuge in the Buddha and the and in the first instance it's the Buddha of the past. And then we go for refuge to the Dharma, which is the teaching of the Buddha that has been passed down to us. And then we go for refuge to the Sangha, and uh, that that is first of all the Sangha that uh, that lived with and followed the Buddha during his lifetime and achieved awakening under his direct teaching because, amongst other things, uh, that gives us an assurance that this awakening is real and it is attainable. And you know, if they could do it too, uh, following that Dharma. And it also assures us that the Dharma that was taught is real and is valid and is, is viable. Uh, when we go for, in the first refuge taking of the Sangha, the Sangha includes all of those people who have achieved awakening over the last 2,500 years. Uh, by practicing this Dhamma as well. So 
were taking refuge in the awakening of the Buddha, the Dhamma that he taught as a means for achieving that ourselves, and all of those people who have achieved awakening as a result of that teaching. And it gives us confidence and helps us overcome our doubt. The second time, the the second round of refuge taking um, is in reference to the future. We go to uh, go for refuge to the awakened one of the future, the Buddha of the future, who will be ourselves. So we go for refuge to our own future awakening enlightenment. We go uh, the meaning of Dharma. We it means teaching. But it actually ultimately, uh, ultimately means truth, ultimate truth. And so the second time we go for refuge to the Dharma, we're going to, for refuge to our own realization of ultimate truth. And then in the second time of taking refuge in the Sangha, then we are going for refuge to the Sangha of what's called the Aryan Sangha, the Sangha of all of those who have achieved enlightenment. And we're going for refuge to our own future membership in that Sangha. So the third time is for the present. We go for refuge to the Buddha of the present, which is our own Buddha nature, which has compelled us to take an interest in the Dharma, uh, to to study the Dharma, to practice, and whether we realize it or not, is always present within us, our own Buddha nature, which we are trying to to reveal and, and uh, bring into its fullness, like the purification of gold from ore. That's the Buddha of the present. The Dhamma of the present is our own study and practice uh, uh, of the the Dharma. It's the Dharma in our daily lives. And the Sangha of the present is all of those people, uh, ordained monks and nuns, uh, awakened or not, but especially those who uh, have awakened, and the Sangha at large, which is all of the people uh, anywhere who are practicing this Dhamma and who have set themselves the goal of awakening. Because this Sangha, the Sangha at large in the world of the present, is our source of support and encouragement. It's from them that we receive teachings and that we receive encouragement and that uh, organize opportunities like temples and retreats and, and other forms of teaching. So it's the the Sangha of the present is a Sangha that supports us day to day in many different ways in uh, in our own practice. And so that's that's the meaning of going for refuge to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha in the past, the future, and the present. Um, if you with with anything like this, it's only as powerful as powerful and as effective as you make it. If you mindlessly repeat the syllables like a parrot, it doesn't really have a lot of effect. 
But if you go for refuge with this kind of awareness in your mind, what I just went over, (coughs) every time you do that, however often it is, uh, uh, every day, once a week, or once a month, or every now and then, but if every time you do it, it's with an awareness of this, then it is reinforcing in you uh, this... uh, uh, the determination, the aspiration, the understanding, the, the, it reminds you that you have the support of the Sangha, it reminds you of all of these different things, it reminds you that someday you are going to be awakened. Uh, so, to, to do a going for refuge uh, in the most efficacious way is to accustom yourself to the meaning of it and hold that meaning in mind. So you're reinforcing it in your mind whenever you do it. Uh, in, uh, uh, in many Buddhist countries, they still follow a practice that was established uh, by the Buddha himself called Uposita Day. And Uposita Day corresponded to the quarters of the moon, which means it was approximately once a week. And so it it correlates fairly directly to uh, to the Sabbath in Western culture. And the tradition, what the Buddha uh, said, he, he told the bhikkhus uh, that uh, uh, on each of the quarters of the moon uh, that they were to make themselves, whatever else they were doing, they were to make themselves available to teach uh, lay people. And then he instructed the lay people on each Ukosita day to... Uh, to go and uh, hear instruction and also to practice. Uh, and one way that Uposita day is recognized is to, to spend the day living, if, if you're a lay person, to live as though you were a, a, a monastic. Uh, traditionally, they would go to the local monastery and spend the whole day and very often the night as well uh, listening to Dharma talks studying, uh, meditating, you know, and uh, living very simply, eating only the midday meal, not eating afternoon, and, you know, basically keeping, and and also for that 24 hours, taking some additional precepts. But this would be an occasion on which uh, a lay person would always do the the refuges, so at least once a week. Um, and, And so the the pages that you're using to read the refuges and precepts from are actually an Uposada day um, uh, observance. And we're not, we, we don't go through the whole thing, we just do the refuges and precepts here. Which is actually most of it. <laughs> the precepts, uh, they are they are a very important part of Buddhist practice because they are the foundation of the practice of virtue and they are also a, a very powerful tool for developing mindfulness. You must learn to be mindful in order to practice precepts uh, well enough to keep them effectively and consistently. And it's also a tool for developing uh, deeper understanding uh, and actually perfecting 
your virtue, not through, just through action, but through understanding and intention. Because, you know, for example, one of the precepts is not to take anything that's not freely given. And that obviously means, you know, don't go robbing and stealing. But, you know, as you practice it, uh, it, it, it goes through progressive levels. It means not taking anything that's not freely given. And at some level it means things like, you know, you're, you're with a group of people and there's a plate of brownies and there's only one left. You know, it's uh, offering it to everyone else first before you have it or maybe leaving it for someone else, you know, that sort of thing. It means uh, not only respecting other people's property and not stealing it, but also protecting it. You see, somebody has left something out where it might disappear, and you take it and you put it away and take care of it. So it means taking care of other people. So this is the way with all of these precepts, is they progressively, uh, they, they can develop into a progressive purification of your understanding and your practice of virtue. The other thing about keeping the precepts is it, it changes the kind of person you are and it changes the kind of life experience that you have. Because if you practice this, as you come to be known as a person who uh, refrains from harming others, refrains from uh, stealing, uh, the false speech or the, the wrong speech includes lying, uh, uh, harsh speech, uh, slandering, uh, gossip. You know, you become to be known as a person who is is trust, trustworthy in their speech and doesn't gossip and slander and so forth. Uh, not engaging in sexual misconduct. Uh, being mindful and not doing things that destroy your mindfulness, like uh, excessive consumption of alcohol, using drugs, becoming overtired, and all, all these other kinds of things that that uh, interfere with clarity of mindfulness. When you look at the precepts, uh, there is a strong orientation in all of the precepts to not causing harm to others or to yourself. That's what they're really all about. Ultimately, all of the precepts can be summed up in, in cause, causing no, or, or uh, not being the cause of any avoidable suffering for others which all of these things that we refrain from doing potentially are. And so uh, taking the precepts helps to uh, remind us of that. The, the first five precepts, which I've summarized here, are uh, they are the basic five precepts that uh, any person uh, is expected to take and to try to keep uh, when, they, when they declare themselves to be a Buddhist. If you are a Buddhist, you take these five lifetime precepts. The second set of five precepts that I uh, had you do with me here are those for a dedicated lay practitioner. Somebody who is, as we talked about last night, going from being a worldly person and a person who also has an interest in the Dharma and practicing it to being a person whose whole life, a, a lay person in the world 
but who's who's uh, for whom the, the Dharma uh, and the path has become basically the whole of their life, which the rest of their life, their job, their family, everything else becomes an expression of. And so you'll notice the way that those that, that those precepts are all directed exactly towards that has to do with the source of livelihood, uh, not causing harm. Basically, a source of livelihood that doesn't force you to violate any of the other precepts in any way. And it would mean things like uh, uh, selling guns and alcohol and you know, a lot of things like that that are obviously harmful. And then obviously uh, re- refraining from uh, acting out of ill will and taking satisfaction and the misfortune of others, you know. Uh, that's training training yourself, you know, <laughs> in a very important way. Practicing, uh, uh, learning to be open-hearted, uh, learning to be generous, loving-kindness, compassion. And then the commitment, the last one is the commitment to sustain a practice, to sustain a regular practice through daily uh, study, reflection, and uh, meditation. So that's what those precepts are about. That's uh, kind of a minimal amount of ceremony, but it can be very, very powerful. Some people like a whole lot more ritual and ceremony than that. But I I think you can see that that in its simplicity, um, this is is very powerful. Are there any aspects of this that I neglected to address that... uh, the etiquette, I guess, is pretty. The etiquette, um, I mean, the bowing and. Mm-hmm. Yes. The bowing, it's. It's overtly showing respect to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and uh, the Sangha. But. When you take a moment and you remind yourself that you wish to uh, to become pure in body, speech, and mind, you know that you uh, that you want to achieve awakening and you want to dedicate your body, speech, and mind to the process of awakening. And that, uh, at least for some of us, that uh, you want to be of service, and so you dedicate body, speech, and mind to the service uh, of others in the Dharma. I mean, that can mean many things. I mean, it could mean going and working in the soup kitchen, but it also could mean teaching. So sometimes it means... Uh, may I set aside my personal self and ego and become a vehicle of the Dhamma in body, speech, and mind. The other things that are symbolic is the robe or uh, the, the outer robe of the monk or the meditation shawl of uh, an apostolic uh, dedicated lay practitioner. The idea is that when you put that over your shoulders, 
uh, uh, specifically over your left shoulder. When, when the outer robe or the shawl covers your left shoulder, you give up your personal uh, uh, ideas, wishes, wants, desires, everything else, and you are a servant of the Dharma. And rather than, you know, when the, when the shawl is on your left shoulder as much as possible, you try to, to teach the Dharma, not teach your own opinion about the way things should be and how people should do, but to, but to be a vehicle for the Dharma. So, so there's a, there's a symbolism in, in the robe that's very important. And so, you know, when you see, you just remember that whenever you see a robe over your left shoulder, that's what it means. It means I'm, I'm trying to give up my particular personality, personhood, and to serve as a vehicle for the Dharma. Anything else that I neglected to mention so far? Um, there, there's a tradition of uh, uh, allowing the teacher to leave the meditation hall first before anyone gets up and leaves, which doesn't, of course, need to be strictly kept. And sometimes people need to leave, and they do, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. But uh, that, once again, is a a showing of respect, you know, and. Uh, respect to the teacher, but also respect to everyone else. It's disturbing to other people when you know uh, someone gets up and oh, okay, he's done. You know, get up and go on. So. Trying to think, is there anything else I've left out here? No, nothing comes to mind at the moment. Well, some people do stand for the teacher, or. Um don't know about that. Some do, some don't. Yes, well, whether you do or you don't, then in the most uh, the most formal way of showing respect for the teacher is that uh, everyone stands up when the teacher enters and remains standing until the teacher uh, uh, bows to the Buddha. And then they sit down. And then when the uh, teacher gets up, everybody else gets up, and they wait, and they, they stand and wait until uh, the teacher has left the room. And it's sort of, you know, it's a, they do the same thing in courtrooms, right? You know, all rise, the judge comes in. <laughs> so it's just a very traditional way of, of showing respect and maintaining a certain degree of order and decorum. Uh, you, know, you know how it is in a and a class at school and the bell rings and you know everything just collapses, no order, everybody's scrambling <laughs> to get out. It sort of keeps a different level of order to a Dharma teaching than what you have in a you know, Photoshop class. <laughs> Could you turn the heat down a little bit? Anything else comes to mind? Thanks. You're welcome. I I think these things are important to understand. They're all tools in one way or another. They're 
like prostration, what do you call it? Prostration? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's that? Um, that's something that uh, uh, different different cultures, that's a cultural thing. Tibetans do prostrations. And uh, you can do prostrations in uh, several different ways, but the full prostration is they go down and they uh, on their knees and then stretch out completely on the floor and come back up and then stand up completely and then go all the way back down and prostrate on the floor three times. All the way flat? What's that? All the way flat? All the way flat. That would be a complete three prostration. Times. There are a lot of intermediate variations where you go down on the knees and touch the forehead to the floor and come up. The, these variations are uh, they're cultural they're all basically the same thing as this it's just some people say I'm more pious than you I, <laughs> I, I know that's <laughs> I don't know that they're thinking that at all and I don't think they are I think in Tibet some people do that, like if they're going around a shrine, they'll do like prostration and they mark it and then they walk up to it and do another prostration. Yeah, they, they will. It. Uh, they'll do that to go around. It's, it's very common to do prostrations, circumambulating uh, um, a stupa. There's actually a path around the Dalai Lama's residence that people very often, you know, it's, uh, I don't remember how long it is, I think it's probably about three or four miles long. And people will prostrate the entire path. Wow. You know, every single, every single, they take a step and they prostrate. Stand up, take one more step, prostrate. Oh, is that how they do it? Because I thought they marked where their fingers were and they walked up to that spot and did it again. But maybe there's different ways to do it. I have different ways to do it. <laughs> and there's people that have done, uh, that do pilgrimages. They, they, they'll travel a thousand miles prostrating every single. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. So. There are all kinds of different ways a person can choose to to display their reverence and practice. There are some very interesting things about bowing. Uh, I'm trying to remember. Somebody wrote a very good a, a Westerner, a Western Buddhist monk. I can't remember who it was. Wrote a very good article about bowing and how much trouble he had with bowing at first he went to a monastery in Asia and received an ordination and uh, you're supposed to bow to uh, there's a lot of bowing involved and for Westerners bowing to anybody seems you know it's like I don't do that kind of thing. <laughs> but there, there, there is a hierarchical order. You know, of course, you always bow to teachers, but you bow to anyone who has been ordained longer than you. And you bow to them every time you come, you know, you're, you're walking along and, and you happen to cross their path. If they were ordained the day before you, then you bow. And he talked about he had so much resistance to that because it'd be some sloppy, lazy person that didn't even practice. And, you know, <laughs> and here he was expected to bow to them. But it, it's a whole process of learning humility. It's a way of learning, learning to uh, 
let go of that ego attachment. I mean, it's nothing but pure ego that makes you reluctant to bend over. I mean, you know, you, <laughs> you bend over to pick up a penny. <laughs> right. So, the, uh, so something like that can can be a powerful learning experience uh, and a reminder, a reminder of the need to be respectful. And it's you know, I bow to you all the time because I, you know, the nature of our relationship, you know. I'm in the relationship of uh, a teacher. Um, I I want always to remember that you're the most important person of of the two of us. So I bow down to you, you know. And, and if you bow in return for your own sake, that's wonderful. But if you bow, that's not what's important to me. I don't doesn't matter to me whether you bow or not, but whether I bow to you is important. To acknowledge you, uh, like in the in uh, India, the common greeting is Namaste, which means basically I, I honor the divine within you. Uh, you know, it's an honoring of the other person, and that's what bowing to someone is: is honoring them, honoring them, and uh, setting aside your own pride and self-cherishing. You could try prostrating prostrate to everybody you meet now. <laughs> I'm bound to get some interesting comments that way. <laughs> and a lot of exercise. You'll be, yeah, you'll, you'll, you'll have tremendous cardiovascular fitness. If you <laughs> Prostration is pretty vigorous exercise. Try doing a hundred prostrations every day. We're getting shaped. I think Tibetan ones like that, where they do a certain number, they try to do a thousand or something. Or, yeah. Uh, well, a hundred uh, in in the Kagyu lineage, amongst the foundation practices is is to do a hundred and eight thousand prostrations, and so you work on it, work work away at it every day, keeping count. Have little counters that uh, you use, so every time you. Do another set of prostrations. You you drop another counter in the jar until you've got your hundred hundred and eight thousand prostrations done. Um, do we have some topics related to meditation that we're interested in pursuing here? You started going over um, steps four through seven last night, or you did go over steps four through seven last night. Yeah. On kind of the progression of, of meditation practice. And it might be too time consuming, but I think it would be kind of interesting if you sort of presented, maybe not just strictly in the, in the stepwise manner that you did last night, but kind of, I guess, the mechanism of. of progression of meditation where we start with this concentration practice and refine it to the point of single 
single point of focus, and then there's that kind of flexibility. Uh, and then from there, the insights start to come, and, and all that <laughs> summarized. Um, I just, uh, it's just useful for me um, mm -hmm. to have that to have that very clear clear framework in mind. And I know you've gone over it somewhat before. But mm -hmm. Yeah. Um. There's, there, I could say so much about it. I'm trying to think of what could be fairly concise and relevant. I, I think the uh, best place to start is just to remind once again <clears throat> the end result of the training. And then this this is really separate from what you do with the training. <clears throat> but the end result of the training is that you want a mind that is uh, malleable and wieldy and has is capable of powerful mindful awareness. Those, those are the two things. <clears throat> and a mind that's malleable and wieldy, that is particularly referring to uh, concentration, distractibility. Um, it's a mind that you can intentionally direct wherever you choose and sustain your attention there uh, relatively effortlessly for as long as you choose to. And that can translate into Focusing single-pointedly, fixing the attention on one object, or it can mean uh, watching everything that arises and passes away. Um, and there's two ways you can do that. One is that you can just be open and aware and uh, the mind can freely move from one thing to another to another. As you know, whatever is most predominant in the moment. It's a sound, you just observe it till it passes away. A thought, without engaging in it, you just observe the presence of a thought until it passes away. That's whatever comes up, you know, and uh, you can do this very, very quickly and very fluidly. That's one result. Another result is that in the same way that you fix your attention on a single thing, you make your mind completely still, and then you just allow anything, anything at all that happens to arise and pass away, allow it to arise and pass away without following it at all. Without, you know, basically your, your mind is just open and space-like and you allow anything that will to, to come and go while your mind remains in a very unperturbable state. So these are... Uh, these are the results of the training and concentration. The single-pointedness is only one of the things that you can do. And single-pointedness is a necessary stage in the training. The only way you overcome the tendency for the attention to move by itself and the tendency for the other parts of your mind to constantly uh, barrage your awareness with different sensations and different thoughts and feelings is through training and single-pointedness. And 
you have mastered single-pointedness when you can sustain it effortlessly. And uh, in the seventh stage that I talked about last night, you have you have single-pointedness, but it still takes effort. If you if you cease to be vigilant and if you cease to correct, then your concentration will deteriorate. You have to you have to be constantly exerting a certain amount of effort. So you have single-pointedness. But what you do in the seventh stage is you practice single-pointedness until it becomes natural to the mind, until the mind is so well-trained that it's effortless. Then you're free to practice in these other ways that I described. And then the other thing that you're developing all the way along the line is this power of mindfulness, which the opposite of, uh, of this mindful awareness is dullness. And so by learning to recognize dullness and, and prevent it from arising, and then by going actually beyond that and through exercising the power of your mindful awareness, becoming even more powerfully mindful. Um, that's, that's the other thing. So th- these are the two qualities of mind that you want to develop, which allows you to do uh, a number of extremely powerful practices. The, the mechanisms of arriving at that stage uh, of uh, effortless uh, single-pointedness, uh, I did go over them, but I'll just, I'll just recapitulate them again briefly. You, you develop concentration first by training yourself to always come back to the object no matter where your mind goes and to do it without getting in getting upset about it judging and and then after a while that becomes automatic that become you know even uh, even though your mind still wanders you're starting to train the mind so it automatically comes back to the meditation object no matter what and, it, and so that means it comes back more quickly then the other thing is you train yourself to yeah, something train yourself to engage with the meditation object so that you stay with it as long as you can. And and that also increases your mindful awareness at the same time. And until after a while it becomes natural for the mind never to lose the meditation object. And then you refine that to the stage of single pointedness. And then you practice single-pointedness until it becomes effortless. And then you're free to do anything you want with your mind. As far as the mindful awareness goes, you start out by being uh, by being clear, very clear of the details of your meditation object and preventing dullness from robbing you of that vividness and clarity. But in the process, you're doing another very important thing, too. The way that you know that your mind is is slipping into dullness is that you're actually observing your mind. And you notice that, oh, I'm becoming dull. The way you train your mind in dealing with distractions is, is becoming aware of the mind's distractedness, aware, uh, aware of what's going on. So you go from having 
mindful awareness of an object, the meditation object, and you intensify that and you learn to sustain it and keep it from deteriorating into dullness, but you also, at the same time, naturally become more and more introspectively aware until your mindful awareness is a continuous uh, awareness of what your mind is doing in the present moment, what is actually happening in the here and now. Uh, That's how how those two are developed and accomplished. I don't know if I've addressed exactly what you were looking for. Yeah, it's just it's just useful to hear it over and over again. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It is, yes, and, and to remind yourself of what you're trying to do. And, and Can I ask you a question? I kept hesitating because I didn't want to go too much into my into my own technical um, practice right now. But something you said kind of brought um, brought a question up. Is it possible, um, so the states I was talking about, that we were talking about today, that I've been um, working with, I seem to be getting a lot of dullness after the fact, like it's almost like a hangover. Mm-hmm. And I've got this intense concentration still, where I can hold the object, and I didn't even think it was dullness till now, because it was so powerful, mm-hmm. and I'm not used to having dullness in such high concentration. Mm-hmm. But is that basically what it is? And and part of the reason I ask is, should I not try to sit through another sit directly and actually take a break if I'm starting to experience that dullness and I'm not coming out of it, or should I stay with the object until the dullness drops away on its own? Okay, that, that's a that's a very good question. Uh, you have to make a determination. Like when your concentration is is good, that's when you're at the greatest danger of, of dullness arising and so uh, and, and it's it's very good to practice being aware of the danger of subtle dullness and correcting for it if it, if it arises but you, you will be at some point you're subject to a kind of fatigue your mind starts to to uh, get tired and you might find that you're just constantly slipping into dullness and pulling yourself out, slipping into dullness and pulling yourself out. And um, if often that will resolve itself, it's like you work at it for a while and then it's gone and you're bright and clear again. But if by the end of the sit, you know, you uh, that's still happening, then don't even contemplate sitting again. Get up and do a walking meditation and uh, practice mindfulness and stay stay focused, but in in this uh, in, in this condition of, of of moving and greater stimulation. Um, I'm just wondering to follow on that. Maybe it isn't dullness. Uh, what I what I, what I'm experiencing, it's not it's not a uh, kind of give and take like with fatigue where you're falling asleep. It's after I you know in that state. Um, if it drops away, even maybe the next sit, it's just this constant baseline, don't, uh, very uh, like a dense fog um, in between me and everything else. Yeah, that's it's just, that's subtle dullness. When okay. yeah, that's that's what it's like. It's you know you're you're watching the breath, but it's almost like you're watching it through a gauze curtain. Or yeah. Something. yeah. Okay. So it's best to. to 
to yeah. pause yeah. for a bit. And so, in the in the course of uh, a retreat like this, you know, if you if you are doing longer sits because your concentration is good, but you find that happening a lot, then uh, maybe you should go back a little more in balance with the walking. kind of relates to that a little bit. And it's the idea, this craving for a certain amount of unconsciousness, you know, <laughs> this thought that, this thought that being constantly mindful sounds so awful in a certain way. There's kind of this craving for a kind of give and take of it, you know, where there can be like sort of less consciousness by just, you know, sort of doing ordinary stuff. It's kind of like pleasant, yeah. but it doesn't really... For, for as long as it takes effort, there is that feeling that, yeah, you want to break from it. But it's actually, mm-hmm. uh, it's really beneficial to uh, insist on staying mindful, you know, in, in a retreat setting in particular, to sustain your mindfulness as uninterruptedly as you can from when you wake up until you you go to sleep. Uh, it also... Go ahead, sorry. I was just going to say that what does happen is mind, remaining mindful becomes easy, and mm-hmm. you and when that happens, you you love to have a high level of mindfulness, and you really much prefer it over uh, relinquishing that and the dullness. So uh, the 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 effort and the getting tired of it is only a temporary aspect of it. But it seems also kind of like this balancing thing, like if one pushes too hard to be mindful, then there'll be a rebellion, you know? That's right. <laughs> that yeah. will happen, mm-hmm. and that's yeah. not a good thing either, so it's kind of this balance yeah. thing. You don't, you don't push too hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, but, you, but you try not to just lose it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really easy to do that, just, ah, let go of the whole thing. Right? <laughs> you don't do that. But you can, you can continue to be mindful without, you know, all that intensity and pushing yourself so hard. But just do your best not to not to let the whole thing unravel. Mm. Um, I have a question about mindfulness. Um, well, you know, when I, if I'm to be mindful from the time I wake up till I go to sleep at night um, and I take a walk or something, Mm-hmm. I find that I'm asking myself, am I mindful? <laughs> you know, I, it's like the self-doubt of, wait a minute, is this mindfulness or isn't it? You know, I'm walking along looking at the trees and mm-hmm. and and I suppose just the fact that I'm asking the question means I'm sort of mindful. Yes. That's right. But, but there's, I mean, it seems sort of painful in a way <laughs> to to keep wondering, what am I supposed to be looking at or what... You know, I'm, I guess I'm just supposed to have that part of me looking at the part of me that's, that's, yeah. that's acting in the world. It's, yeah, it, it, it shouldn't be onerous. The direction you want to go with it is, uh, it's like always holding the, uh, this, uh, sense of discovery, like, oh, this is what it's like to be walking. Oh, this is what I'm doing now. Oh, my mind is is asking if I'm being mindful. Oh, I'm worrying about it. Oh, this is what it's like to worry about being mindful. <laughs> you know? Oh, this is what it's like to hear the birds. It's, it's sort of like always 
whatever it's happening, mindfulness says, so what is this like? What is this really, what is this experience really like? Mm-hmm. What, is, what is walking like? And then, just, and then just observes. Doesn't analyze, just observes to see what walking is like, what hearing is like, what, what uh, seeing is like, what worrying is like, what, what thinking is like, what feeling is like. It's just mindfulness without judgment, which, you know, am I being, am I being mindful right now, implies that you're all set to make a judgment, right? You know, but if you, if you can just remember to let go of that, oh, this is what it's like to worry about whether you're being mindful or not. This is what it's like to be talking to my teacher. This is what it's like. You know, it's it's sort of a extra thing that's going on. It's not a, exactly a direct well, experience of reality. That's the trouble with uh, words and how we express these things and how we interpret them. Because what I mean is really be present. Uh, that's another way of putting it. When you're being mindfulness, when you're really present, the more completely present you are, the more mindful you are. Present in your senses—is that what you're saying? Present in, present in, what is actually happening in this moment, um, and think of it in terms of senses. Yes, but the six senses. You know, if this is your emotional state, that's also the same as hearing, seeing. If, if there's a particular kind of thought process going on, that's also the same as, as feeling and uh, walking and everything else. It's being present with what's happening. Not analyzing. Mm-hmm. Just noticing. And the, the thing about it, too, is that whatever is happening is constantly changing. So if you're really in the present, you're noticing everything is flowing. The thought, the feeling, you know, even that kind of question uh, uh, and, and doubt that arises, it, it's not static, it flows. Everything flows. And so you're just observing the flow. So then, I'm sorry, can I ask a question? If that question comes up of, of like feeling like, craving to be less conscious or something, then it's like being mindful of that. Or just being with that sensation or that yes, there or is desire or that whatever it is. There's a desire for dullness. Mm-hmm. People are drawn to uh, drugs, alcohol, sleep, TV, computer games, all kinds of things for the sake of the dullness. They want the, they want the escape. They want the dullness. Yeah, it's like a distraction from painful yeah. things. But I guess I was thinking that rather than trying to reject that or whatever, just to be mindful of it. That's exactly right. Just be mindful of it. Yeah. Just, yeah, it's that same thing. So this is, this, this is the mind uh, craving some dullness. It's sort of, it's sort of giving <laughs> it a break, too, because it kind of well, can understand where that comes from and don't have to be... Yeah. Don't have yeah. to be... 
judgmental about it. But keep in mind that you don't have to give up being mindful. you can see you can give up the intensity, the trying, the pushing, and everything else, and still be present. Right, and one can be present to that stuff with, in a sort of a compassionate way that's like kind to it instead of mm-hmm. instead of punishing to it. Yeah. Right. The other thing is, a part of the process of being mindful really should be <coughs> discovering how wonderful the present moment is. I mean, some present moments are more wonderful than others, granted. And some you have to really look to find any. <laughs> but, uh, in general, uh, part of the process of fully being present is discovering how wonderful the present is. There are so many things happening in terms of, of your six senses at any given moment. And... Uh, and that in itself is a wonder, but some of them, you know, they'll cover the range. Some are pleasant, some are unpleasant, some are neutral. But there are, is always something quite, uh, quite pleasant. Uh, that uh, almost always is something quite pleasant. That, especially when you're when you're doing this kind of practice in this kind of setting. But isn't it like the mindfulness that makes it pleasant? It's like a weird question, but <laughs> it's like which is first? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the chicken or the egg? <laughs> I think that that will be your homework. You, <laughs> I know, is it your mindfulness that makes it pleasant, or is your mindfulness discover the pleasantness that's there, or is it both, or is it neither? Is it something different? <laughs> okay. Uh, would you like to take a few minutes to stretch? And then maybe we'll do uh, uh, a guided meta meditation before we go to bed. <sighs> mm. oh.